Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Silviva podcast, the podcast about learning in and with nature. We offer you up-to-date, evidence-based information about the practice of learning outdoors, teaching outside the classroom, nature-based environmental education, place-based education, and related topics. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi there, and a very warm welcome to the Silviva podcast. We bring you a series of interviews with some of the world's top researchers in outdoor learning. In this podcast, Dr. Jakob von Au and myself, Dr. Rolf Jucker, discuss the two research volumes that we have edited together. The first one is High Quality Outdoor Learning, Evidence-Based Education Outside the Classroom for Children, Teachers and Society published by Springer Nature in 2022. Please see the show notes for the appropriate link. You can either download the entire book as a PDF or an EPUB. You can download individual chapters or you can read them online. The second volume is called Draußen Lernen. Neue Forschungsergebnisse und Praxiseinblicke für eine Bildung für nachhaltige Entwicklung published by Hep Verlag in Bern, equally in 2022. Again, there is a link in the show notes to this book. This book is in German and available as a soft cover. In various tertiary education institutions, such as teacher training universities, it will be available electronically. So please check out your institutional access. And now I bring you Dr. Jakob von Au. Jakob, a very warm welcome to you. Before we launch into our editing work, give us a bit of your background. What is your educational journey? And in particular, why are you interested in outdoor learning? Thank you very much, Rolf, for inviting me to this podcast. I'm looking forward uh, to our talk, even though you might hear it already. Uh, my voice might sound a bit funny due to a flu. Sorry for that. Um, okay, but um, this was not the background you were asking for. Mm, my professional background looks like this. I've been a high school uh, teacher for 11 years now and a university lecturer for six years. And in both areas, my main interests um, are how can we make education more diverse, uh, more interdisciplinary, more experience-based, more just horizon-widening, <laughs> more sustainable, and so on. And one answer for me is we have to leave this, these... Uh, limiting classroom walls and these limiting lecture hall walls more often. But tell me, uh, what's your background and what's your interest? Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to, to say a few things in, in this direction. Um, you've also just triggered a few thoughts uh, with your answer. Um, I'm by training, I'm coming from a totally different field. I, I have a degree in German studies, philosophy and, and history, and I taught at the University of Wales Swansea for more than 12 years in, in these subjects. But the experience was a similar one. You know, teaching that at a university more and more gave me exactly this idea that we are limiting our educational potential. Uh, very much through a exclusively um, subject-based or theme-based approach. And um, when my first daughter was born, I suddenly started to ask myself um, stupid questions about um, what are you going to tell her when you're 60 and she asks you, what have you done in your life that is halfway sensible has maybe contributed not just to your own well-being but also to the well-being of other people and the planet and um, I realized that our university didn't have an environmental policy so I wrote that 
environmental policy. It got passed and I was then in charge of the Environment Committee for many years. And in that time, I realized I really wanted to change my professional perspective. And I did a Master of Science at the London South Bank University in development education and environmental education. In the end, on the, on the degree um, that was then termed Education for Sustainability, that was exactly the time when that uh, Education for Sustainability or Sustainable Development, I prefer the, 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 the first term, but uh, when that was born. And, and the, the motivation really was this interest, which you mentioned, you know, the interest in, okay, how can we make education more engaged with the real world? But maybe I can link that kind of professional background, which we've now elaborated to your personal experiences. You know, I asked myself, did you have at some point, a beautiful, life-changing, learning-intense personal experience in outdoor learning, or was it more that you came to this through your educational, professional educational experience? Good question. I think I couldn't really say that I had this one big experience that really changed my life or my, my perspective. Um, but luckily, um, I've had many beautiful moments over the years. And um, yeah, maybe to pick one, um, you know, I'm kind of a, of a nature freak, maybe like you, as you've just told us. Um, and I'm incredibly curious. So this week, for example, um, I was so happy when I found a very old uh, hidden, um, what is it called in English? I guess a mul mulberry tree. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, that's not far away from uh, where I live, but I've never seen it before. And all of a sudden, I felt like understanding many connections that I didn't uh, realize before. You know, the, the hot, rocky area that is only used for railway lines and stuff today. Obviously, it used to be a cultivation area for mulberries and uh, silkworms uh, were bred there and so on. So this was almost uh, a moment of enlightenment for me, which was um, very, very um, inspiring for me. But... Even better is um, if you're outside with high school students or university students. And uh, I guess you know this at first, they just talk about computer games and Netflix stuff and so on. Exactly. And then after a while, you can observe uh, some kind of transformation and they, they plunge into a different world. And uh, probably that are my most beautiful moments. Uh, and you, yourself, have you had any key experiences? I've thought about it. And, and as you said, you know, it's, if you're interested in a, 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 a field, it's almost stupid to ask, was there one key experience? You know, because uh, very often there are multiple experiences which then shape your reaction and, and your development. Um, but I think it, there was one particular experience in childhood which, which really um, triggered this interest or symbolizes it. And, and on reflection, I always realized it really had a lot to do with, with why we think outdoor learning maybe has something to offer to, to the development of, of uh, kids, uh, young people and, and, and adults. My father grew up on the Rhine um, in a little village uh, uh, in, in Switzerland. And they, they learned to swim in the Rhine in primary school. 
and and he was he was a really good swimmer and and he he taught us early on to swim in open waters in the rhine in in lakes uh, and so forth and and for me this this is really a, a very good example for the difference between indoor learning and outdoor learning because it's a bit similar with indoor pool swimming and uh, swimming in 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 the rhine or in an open water um, because in the pool, you know, the, the size is given, uh, there's usually no current, um, there are very often clear rules of, of um, uh, what, what you can do and what you can't do. Maybe there are even lines drawn so that you can swim your, your length uh, back and forth. Um, but outside, if you swim in, in an open uh, water, that is totally open and different. You have to interact with the current, you have to cope with the current, um, you have to cope with different depth. Um, maybe there's seagrass, which actually, um, you know, uh, disturbs you when swimming out. Um, there are boats coming from all directions. Um, there, are, there are other swimmers, obviously, there are other swimmers in, in, in an indoor pool as well. But to me, this symbolizes very well what you also described beautifully with that mulberry tree. Um, you, you're interacting with a rich three-dimensional or even more dimensional because you've got all the senses um, lumped in again. Um, you, you interact with a complex reality that is ongoing, living, uh, dynamic. And the beauty is that you learn very quickly to deal with that. You know, for, for many that might be a challenge and, and they might think, oh, that, that's very risky. Um, but through learning to do it, you also learn that you can actually um, cope with uh, complex systems like that. And, and I think that has, has really shaped my, my, my understanding also of, of outdoor learning. Of course, I might glorify that a little bit now in retrospect, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, but it has been an important um, experience. Maybe we can link that or those experiences which we've now elaborated to a recent experience we both share. Um, it has been an absolutely fantastic experience, I must say, to work together with you um, editing these two volumes. Um, but at the same time, we have to be honest, and it is clear that editing volumes like that is an awful lot of work. So I'd really like to ask you, is there a good reason to do that, to, to actually engage so much and, and over such a long time with editing work like that? What would you say? Hmm. Firstly, uh, thank you, Rolf. Um, I appreciate it, it very much uh, to work with you. Thanks again for that. Um, and yes, uh, that's true. That's absolutely true. It's a, a lot of work. Um, and I think my main motivation was to build some, some kind of bridge between research and practice. I know of many teachers and um, headmasters and lecturers who would really like to do more outdoor learning, but I think they feel kind of alone in their thinking at their institutions. And they don't have good arguments um, to convince others, maybe. So my hope was um, to help these people um, to find good arguments, to convince others, and maybe um, to get inspired, to find new ways to teach and learn outdoors. And yeah, hopefully we've made some people happy um, by making these sometimes complex and complicated uh, research results more accessible. And what was your main motivation? 
I, I think I can't, I can't add a lot more. I think you, you, you really beautifully summed it up. For me, it was exactly this, this bridging, which, which was important. Um, because if you think about it, um, researchers in the field, they don't need a volume like that. They go to their journals, they go to the primary research, they know where to find it. Um, and and the time to produce a volume like that is far too long that they would be interested in, in in the result and teachers who just want the the really practical activities to be able to go outside with a particular class and a particular subject they don't need those kind of books either the, for that we have um the Draußen unterrichten volume there internationally uh, there, there are loads of practical tools and examples and activities uh, to take your learning outside so um, that's not what we were aiming for either um, but really bridging um, those two worlds which are very often quite distinct and don't very often talk to each other and here providing some support as you said some help um, if somebody says, okay, I would like to do that, but I, I'd also like to understand it. I'd like to have um, good arguments. I, I would like to, to know what, uh, what we know today about um, the effects of outdoor learning on various aspects of the development of kids, of, of, of uh, effective learning and so forth and so forth. And I think here, the volumes can contribute to deepening and 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 also yeah deepening that understanding but also opening the horizon in the sense of um, giving the readers an opportunity to see what is out there uh, in one place um, you know really making it accessible like you said what what we know today about outdoor learning and what is happening, um, what other people are doing. And, and that leads to, to what you said about the motivation, you know, to, to provide people with insights, inspiration, that they feel themselves, okay, yes, I can do it myself. I can try on the one hand, but also decision makers that they understand, yes, this is actually, for very many reasons, an important element of uh, an education in the 21st century. So if you had to sum it up in a few sentences, um, what's unique about these volumes? It's, it's, a, it's a good question because you, you really have to ask this question because it's not like there aren't any other books on the subject out there. So, you know, you really have to ask yourself self-critically, you know, were these two volumes needed or was that just something we did for ourselves rather than for any good other reasons? But I do think um, because we made a deliberate attempt, obviously the two volumes are different in focus, um, but I think for both is true that we made an attempt to, to, on the one hand, really pull out the gold nuggets, a kind of best of international research in the field to make that accessible in one place. That was one um, focus. And the other focus was really like showing what is going on, uh, showing also the breadth and beauty of the tapestry of, of this entire territory of outdoor learning uh, for example in in the in the german speaking world uh, which hasn't been that much of a focus and i think that is unique we were not collecting a particular type of writing or a particular type of articles we were more interested in in a variety in presenting to the reader different approaches and different ways of thinking about it and um, I'm, I'm pretty proud that these volumes really do contain different types of text you know we have 
hardcore uh, research examples in there, which are not that easy to read, but we, we, we try to make it uh, more ap uh, approachable for normal readers by adding footnotes to explain terms that might not be readily understandable. But we also have essay-like um, articles which which really map out um, a particular um, project or, or um, research approach. And I think that diversity, you mentioned this before, that's very important for me as well, this diversity can bring in different types of readers and because they then uh, might find a text which really suits them, which they can deal with uh, very easily, that might actually increase the motivation for them to look for, for, for other texts, to read other, other texts, to, to broaden their horizon, to, to attempt to read one of these more difficult articles. Because I really think that books like this, they, they also have an educational aim. You know, we, we're living in what we call a knowledge society and not just an opinion society. And, and if, we, if we are serious about that, that means that we all, all citizens, they really also have to be able to cope with scientific findings. And uh, that was one reason why we also have really, uh, I'd say, hardcore scientific papers in here. Because I know, for example, from Denmark, that teacher training students, they have to read original science paper and try to understand them. And, and I think there is good reason to say, okay, we have to translate scientific findings into more accessible language. That's one way of doing it. But I think we have also an obligation to develop the other direction that we are not just looking for the simplest way of putting things but that we also develop ourselves, educate ourselves to actually be able to understand and come to informed conclusions about scientific findings as they are produced by scientists. So I think, I'm, I'm sorry, Jakob, I, I talked more than just a few sentences as you, as you asked myself to do, but I really think it's a bit of a idiosyncratic approach it's a bit of a special approach and i'm not entirely sure that it 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 works but i think it was very important at least for me but i think also for you um to attempt as we said before to attempt to bring these worlds together you know to 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 really get these different levels of engagement, if you want, to talk to each other, to understand each other, to provide a platform where this becomes possible. But maybe I can turn it around again and, and stop talking so much. What would you say were the most important learnings that you take away from editing these two volumes? I guess. I had a lot of learnings or um, findings uh, for myself. I like the way you described the bridging of these two worlds. And um, when talking to all the authors and uh, talking about their articles and modify them a little bit and so on, I had the feeling that it's more than just um, bridging different worlds maybe it's uh, also bridging different people and yep. i realized again um how important it, it is to build networks you know i think you can only promote things like outdoor learning if you have productive networks and i'm pretty sure that um such editor volumes have at least the potential to strengthen networks and to connect people and to avoid that uh, in many places all over the world, uh, people do the same things, but uh, without knowing from each other, you know? And um, yeah, I, I really feel, or I hope at least, that these people that we brought together through these volumes, um, that will will be a, a network that maybe in future yeah can work together again or 
just um, reach our other goals as well. <laughs> How is it uh, with you, Rolf? What did you learn? Any things you didn't know at the beginning or anything that you understood through doing this? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is really, really a core question. And I think it really has to do, and that's the beauty of it for me, that we work together. Because collaborating really made me understand, broaden my perspective. Because initially we both had uh, slightly different approaches and, and they might still be visible in the, in the two different volumes. I was more convinced that for a volume like that, the prime criteria needs to be quality. Um, I had talked with a very experienced editor at Springer and he said, look, quality is, is always more important than quantity. So, so try to be brief, try to really be uh, harsh about selecting um, contributions and so forth. And to me, that made sense. And then um, I talked to you and we talked about the conception of, 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 the, of the volumes and, and you stressed what you've just said now, you've stressed this core importance of networks, of bringing in people, of bringing in different approaches and understandings which are represented by, by different people and different research traditions that, and so forth and so forth. And at the beginning, I was a bit hesitant, but, but I really think that, that the results show how important that is to combine those two elements. And for me, the most important learning, apart from that collaboration with you, which again showed me that cooperating and co-creating actually expands horizons and makes you learn things which you didn't, learn, didn't know before. That was certainly one thing. But the other core thing was that what you said, namely that volumes like that ideally create new networks. This has actually happened to me. You know, because of the intense process of working together with the collaborators, working on their contributions, um, getting back to them with questions, trying to understand what they're actually doing, that creates a, a highly intense and qualitative bond, which I realize now I can just exploit. I've uh, started a new research project with some contributors. I uh, know now that I have a, a broad network of people whom I can contact anytime if I have a question, if I need some uh, answers to particular um, project uh, um, developments. Um, there really is a, a network out there now with intensified ties, strong bridges, that's called in, in social research, um, which, which is in a totally different place than it was before. That's kind of the positive experience. There's also a negative experience, I have to admit, in, in this editing process. But even that negative experience has a positive outcome in the end. Um, for me, it was absolutely fantastic or, or spellbinding to see how differently the editing companies dealt with those two, two volumes. Um, uh, the, the English volume we did with Springer Nature, um, a worldwide uh, top publishing company in, in the field. And, and the German volume we published with uh, Hepp Verlag in Bern, a very small, small-scale professional publishing company in, in Switzerland. And the support we got from that small publishing company in terms of editing, corrections, uh, copy editing, uh, graphics, uh, visual presentation, um, cover, uh, the cover image, you know, there was a long back and forth with very beautiful uh, suggestions by the graphics people from the publishing company. And then we could interact and tell them how we wanted it. And in the end, I think the result is really, really fantastic. If you, if you look, if you click on the link in the show notes and, and look at the cover of the German edition, then you will see what I mean. 
and and that was absolutely fantastic you know that was really a high quality support and with springer it it was far more difficult i don't know what it has to do because it is a a really um, a big, big uh, company. There, there was a lot of support from the editors who commissioned the book, um, as it were. But in the production process, uh, that turned out to be very, very difficult. So I had a, an awful lot of work which landed on my table, which I actually thought that should have been uh, the publishing company's uh, job. But I mean, you know, on balance, that was a steep learning experience for me. I mean, um, it was a lot of work, but I really, really had to deal with virtually every single aspect of the editing of the individual contributions. Um, on top of that, there was the, the difficulty that we published it both online as an open access volume and as a printed book. And those two things are different you know that the, the published book is is slightly different than the online version in the online version for example you have abstracts for every chapter which i wanted to have in the published book as well but that wasn't possible and so forth and so forth so there were loads of questions loads of added complications as it were but at the same time looking back on it of course it was a fantastic learning experience um and and i think i walk away from it with with the knowledge that I could far more easily do it again. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like often in life, you have learning experience, which are sometimes not particularly nice in, in some aspects, but very often it turns out that even these learning experiences actually trigger something positive or something you can afterwards use and use productively in a way that you have not foreseen at all uh, when you started the process. So hopefully you have the feeling that um, all this time you spent was worth it. Yeah. But um, what would you say, um, what is the main target group for these volumes? It's a good question. And I think I have to, to say there is not one main uh, target audience because I realize I mean I'm, I'm kind of deducing this from some of the feedback we've now got uh, after publishing the volumes I really do think that they're fantastic tools even for teachers you know initially you might think oh, that's far too complicated or too demanding for teachers but there are teachers out there who really really want to put their professional practice on a firm grounding and they can do that with, with those two volumes. But there are also teacher trainers. I think that is a, is a very important target group because virtually all the publications uh, in the last 15 years in the field, they stress that one of the biggest uh, levers for change to, to make outdoor learning more common is in-service and pre-service teacher training. So I think that lecturers at teacher training universities, that's a very important target group because they want the, the in-depth justifications why that approach to learning might make sense. They need to understand it before they can teach it to their teacher students. So I think that's an important target audience. But I also think that decision makers, you know, people who are not necessarily standing in front of a group of teachers or a group of headmasters or even kids, um, but people in educational authorities who make decisions about uh, curricula, about allocation of resources um, and so forth and so forth. So. I think that's an important target group as well. And they want to understand they're not going to make a decision about a rewriting, say, say, let's take a, a principal of a teacher training university. Uh, he is not himself teaching any students or she is not normally, but she will have to make decisions about the curricula of that teacher training university and, and will have to weigh up what is important and what is not so important. And 
they won't make a decision like that based on nothing. So they want some meat on the bone, uh, if that's still an appropriate metaphor in these days. So I think there's, there are different target audiences, but I think that the approach we described before, you know, that the kind of selecting of different texts also makes it possible that these different target audiences really can take something out for themselves and maybe get inspired to look slightly over their uh, normal field of action and maybe get inspired to think in slightly broader terms about education and the future of education when they dig into those two volumes. What do you think, you know, in, in editing the German volume and, and selecting the contributions, what target audiences did you have in mind? Plus also how did that influence your decision-making in, you know, selecting contributions? I think the, the target um, audiences are pretty much the same, like in the English volume. I mean, I thought of um, teacher trainers at first and um, teachers maybe secondly. I mean, I think you could say that all people that are um, interested in high quality education and they um, are decision makers in, in some way a part of the, the target audience as, as you've just uh, described it very well. You asked for the criteria to, to choose uh, the articles for the German volume. We made something like an open call um, in different networks that we had access to. And what came back uh, was quite overwhelming. I guess we could have made uh, at least three volumes. There. However, um, we kept the call quite open to avoid, amongst others, to represent only a single perspective, our perspective. Eh? And the challenge is, I guess, if you do it like this, uh, that you get many articles that are completely different from what you expected. That was quite exciting. And what came out is a very diverse mixture that can hopefully help people uh, with very different backgrounds, eh? as you've said, from teachers to um, headmasters and so on. How was it with uh, the English volume? Yeah, in, in a way it was similar and, and it was a bit different. I really like what you just said about the diversity. I think actually you did a better job with that for the German volume. There is a, a very inspiring variety and distribution um, of different approaches, of different understandings of, of research traditions and so forth and so forth. In the English volume, there was, as I said before, there was a bit more that it is, okay, let's, let's go for the best. And I think we did manage with a couple of contributions, you know, there are a couple of contributions, again, in, in a purely research setting, this is a no-go. Um, you do not reprint things that have been printed already. But a couple of articles in the volume, they're so good. Um, I particularly think of, of the one from um, Minkuo, Michael Barnes and Kathy Jordan. Uh, you know, that, that's a very short, very succinct, superb compilation of where the research stands worldwide and what conclusions we can draw from that. They talk about the converging evidence of uh, cause and effect relationship in, in connection with outdoor learning, you know, which just shows how, how far the field actually has developed. You know, you couldn't have talked about such a relationship uh, 15 years ago because it just simply wasn't visible uh, in, in the research. The yardstick was what is for the target audiences we talked about, you know, what is the most succinct, the most interesting research out there? And, and we didn't have any hesitations to reprint already published material. But then also we, we try to answer different perspectives, you know, that the, the well-being perspective, the focus on, on, on teachers, 
to focus on uh, particular competencies like 21st century competencies. Uh, there are two interesting contributions in there. Um, so, so, so we also tried to go for that diversity, but I think we that was slightly more limited than what you managed in the, in the German volume. I wouldn't call it limited, <laughs> maybe more focused. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, that, 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 that's a bit like the discussion on uh, mm. is the glass half full or mm. half, half empty. It depends a bit on, on what you want to get out of it and, mm. and what perspective you bring to it. You know, what, what, what you stressed, you know, getting out of our own box of expectations and include other perspectives, other um, approaches. Um, I think we managed we managed that quite well in in, in both volumes. Well, if maybe um, we could shift to some broader questions at the end. Of course, that's what outdoor learning is all about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, our world um, is yeah seems turning upside down at the moment. We all know that humanity is, is facing a lot of challenges like climate change, uh, biodiversity loss, and uh, just think of Russia and China and so on. All these challenges have led many people to rethink what's cooling in the 21st uh, century might mean. What do you think is the contribution outdoor learning can make here? That's a very good question. And it is also the question which we get asked all the time from, for example, from people in teacher training universities or in educational authorities. And I think it is a question we really need to take seriously, you know, just because we think outdoor learning is an interesting approach doesn't mean that it necessarily is so. <laughs> um, so we really have to take that question seriously. And, and I think, you know, uh, we both have shown with the publication of these two volumes that we do take that question seriously, that we do, just don't just brush over it, but we, we really try to put um, the evidence on the table to make people reflect and think about um, what that contribution could be. For me, it is it is rather obvious, I must admit, and and I feel that uh, a lot of these developments you 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 just mentioned, but also COVID has added for a lot of people to understanding why outdoor learning, or sometimes we call it real world learning, why that is increasingly important. We do understand both from the pressures that schooling is under. You know, I think that's probably the same in Germany, but in, in Switzerland, um, you have a, la a lot of, you know, problems in, in, in school, the diversity of the kids, the backgrounds of the kids, the, um, what, they, what they bring to school. You know, a lot of teachers, for example, in Switzerland, they say that, um, the first years in schooling, you nowadays have to focus primarily on building up uh, some of basic social competencies, which uh, decades ago was clear that the kids had them when they started schooling, but this is not necessarily obvious anymore for various different reasons. And uh, so, so, so there's a lot of pressure on schools and teaching is a really, you know, let's face it, is a really difficult job. Um, you have to do a lot of things and, and you have to have a lot of competencies simultaneously. You know, you have to be able to deal with group dynamics. You have to be able to develop kids individually. You have to be able to, um, to make sure that they acquire competencies. Um, so you have a lot of different things which you need to, to support and, and, and bring forward and nurture. And here, I just think that outdoor learning has an awful lot of potential, not as the key solution. Outdoor learning is not the magic bullet which solves all the problems of schooling. That's definitely not the case. But it adds options and opportunities to deal with these different demands that are put on, on, on schools and with the diversity 
that we are we are um, we are faced with uh, in a, in a, in a particular school or in a particular class, um, because you know the research really really clearly shows that outdoor learning supports on very many different levels just the basis to make learning happen because it it is not necessarily the best possible solution to teaching certain math competencies but because it supports without you having to focus on it it happens because you go outside it supports social competencies interaction between teachers and students and students themselves it supports um, self-competencies uh, personal competencies it it is very healthy you know one of the most important aspects is that you don't have to do anything special people are moving a lot more and that's teachers and students and we know from from neuroscience research that learning in movement makes learning easier and better to memorize and so forth and so forth so uh, you have that aspect and then you have the aspect of what what i uh, said already uh, real world learning which is you experience phenomena in 3d and with all your senses and we know equally from neuroscience that it is very, very important to be able, if, if you want to be able to deal with complex problems, that you you have to have differentiated mental models. You know, you, you have to be able to picture things, um, to model um, things. And if you can do that on live objects, as it were, not reduced just for a particular piece of learning, but in the dynamics of the real world, I think that can make a contribution. We shouldn't overrate it, but it can make a contribution to dealing with those problems you mentioned in your question. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether, whether you share that view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mostly share it. I mean, um, I always uh, think of creati creativity at first when thinking of outdoor learning. But by the way, I think this is a construct that is very difficult uh, to to measure scientifically. You know? yep. And there are many other things um, that are difficult uh, to, to measure systematically, but um, you can just experience them when you go out with, with children. Anyways, um, what would you say uh, to anybody who has not yet heard of outdoor learning? Why should it be part of uh, every pupil's journey through school? I think probably the answer would be diversity. <laughs> because it seems, if you look at it from a slight distance, it seems just very, very strange why we should still insist on a model of schooling which just has a particular learning environment, the classroom. It seems strange that given all we know about how learning works these days, how our brain functions, how human interaction functions, um, we're essentially social animals. It seems strange that you should build up key competencies, key life competencies, so that people, children, young people can actually deal with life out there after they complete uh, compulsory schooling. You know, and that seems to be the aim of schooling anywhere in the world. You know, we, we want mature, competent, resilient, creative people going out into the world and, 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 and helping shape that world. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a good sustainable way. That, that seems to be the aim. Um, so it seems a bit strange that we, we say, okay, we want that they can competently deal in very many different environments, in different structures, in different interactions and so forth. And you construct a highly artificial learning world in the classroom where you wanna learn all this. It just seems 
very reductionist and not very sensible uh, if you take a little step back and look at the systems. And I think that's the key, you know, just open schooling to the real world. And it doesn't necessarily be in nature. Uh, it's not that a good learning can only happen in nature. That's clearly not the case. You know, we all have multiple learning, positive and, and, and successful learning experience experiences in life in, in very many different contexts, including nature, but not only nature. So I really think outdoor learning needs to be understood in a broad way as well, uh, even though nature plays an important role there. For, for also for the reason that we need to reconnect to nature in a, in, a, in a much more intense way that we normally do now. But I think that would be the main argument, you know, why if we wanna really get kids, young people, and also adults to cope competently with the real world, with the complexity that is out there, how do we wanna do that if we don't utilize that? in that learning journey that we call compulsory schooling mm. that would be my answer but it's mm. it's a bit of a, uh, a long one i'm sorry huh. maybe you have a shorter one maybe you have a one sentence answer it's very interesting <laughs> maybe just, just one word on um on the term real world learning because i think it's it's difficult uh, to use this uh, term maybe we could use the the plural you know because um Every student has its own real world, hasn't it? So maybe you know what I mean? Real world uh, makes you think of this one single world that exists. And, um, you know, I get more of a constru uh, constructivist uh, worldview. Yeah, I know. And, and I know that we, we differ on that because I think uh, to a certain degree, of course, you have, you, you, you're entirely correct. You know, we, we all live in, in, in different subjective worlds. But if you look at it um, scientifically, it's also clear that these subjective worlds are highly, highly prone to errors, to biases, to misunderstandings, to, to I mean, you know, COVID has shown that uh, dramatically, you know, how a lot of people can live in totally absurd, constructed subjective worlds which have no connection whatsoever to the reality anymore. And, and I think we have, we really have to bridge that gap as well. You know, it's absolutely clear that we live in these subjective worlds, but at the same time, it's also to me, at least absolutely clear that there is a real world out there, which exists, whether we here or not, whether our subjective world is here or not. And we need to get people to really appreciate that their subjective world is not the one-all and end-all uh, of what there is, but there is uh, an intersubjective world and there is also um, uh, uh, an objective world out there which doesn't really give a damn uh, what they think about vaccines or not. Uh, it simply exists and the vaccines function whether they believe in their functioning or not. Um, so, so I really think we have to be a bit careful there it's it's one of the most important learnings also connected with outer learning for me over the last years is it's almost never black and white it's almost never this or that it's mostly as well as you know so so i totally agree with you cannot but look at the world through our subjective perspective mm. and that may makes your claim true that every one of us lives in his or her own world and at the same time, I would argue science and only science has allowed us to step outside of these individual subject, uh, subjective worlds and construct a common world uh, which we can access, which we can understand, uh, about which we can talk and communicate. And I think that is part of what I mean with real world learning as well, that we, we realize that it's not just us, there is nature out there, there is other people out there. There is a shared world. Yeah, I think it's just uh, important that uh, people know what's meant by this term. Mm. And as you've just said, um, I think it's clear uh, how we use it in the volume um, that it's meant this this world outside the classroom. Uh, so this this first hand world. 
like real world um, and at the, not the, the like secondhand world in the classroom. What do you think? Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And I totally agree with you that the kind of first stepping stone is that we really talk about these concepts and that we clarify what you what we mean and that we're careful about using these terms. And I, and I really do do like this injunction by you, you know, that we maybe have to to use the plural just to to make it easier for us to not forget that there are these different approaches to what we, you know, very flippantly just call the world uh, or real world. No, I, I, I totally agree with, with your injunction there. I think maybe we, we should uh, start to wrap up this uh, very interesting conversation. Um, again, as in the process of editing the book is just absolutely fantastic and, uh, and always pushes me um, to clarify things, to think further about issues when I talk to you. But maybe maybe we can wrap up with trying to formulate both of us our vision of outdoor learning in 2030. What would your vision be? Maybe I come up with a, a broader version and a short version. Okay, the the broader version is based on on my experience um, that learning at school is mostly. Um, decontextualized and isolated and divided, you know. Um, you have one subject after the next. And like this, I think it's quite difficult uh, to understand correlations between things, to understand things and systems in depth, just uh, as you've said uh, a little while um, before. And, and yeah, to get a bigger picture and um, my ideal of, of learning is that we focus at first on phenomena like climate change, loss of biodiversity, or water or forest and so on. And only in a second step, we should open subject perspectives. And in my opinion, um, the very best way to do so is to go outside with uh, students and to observe phenomena together in the local context and um, discuss questions and uh, do age appropriate research and make uh, links to the global scale and so on. And um, my vision is that this becomes <laughs> real world, you know, uh, that this um, will be part of, of everyday school life. And maybe um, we can compare the situation in Germany or in Switzerland with the situation in Denmark, um, where we have already almost 20% of all schools that offer outdoor learning in, um, on a regular basis. And to sum it up, my, my vision is that in Germany and in Switzerland and elsewhere, we get at least as far as Denmark in 2030, which means 20% uh, of all schools offer outdoor learning. What is your vision? I'm just flabbergasted by, by your vision. As I think it's a very uh, in-depth, uh, beautiful vision, which I would totally share in, in, in all aspects. I would just like to add one dimension to it. You know, my, my vision really is that we get out of this question or that we shift the question. You know, when, when we now talk to people, whether that's teachers, headmasters, lecturers that teach training universities and so forth, their question always is, why outdoors? And, and my vision is that by 2030, everybody understands that asking the question why indoors <laughs> is at least as justified a question as the question why outdoors that kind of shift in understanding what kind of learning we need precisely how you described it you know that would be, be for me an, an absolutely beautiful development that's a beautiful vision <laughs> hey jakob 
Thank you so much for this uh, talk. It was, as ever, absolutely fantastic to play around with ideas and concepts and, and perspectives with you. It's been a, an absolute joy to talk to you. So thank you so much again for making time for that podcast. Thank you very much, Rolf. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Sylviva podcast. We hope you learned something new that you can use in your own practice. Feel free to give us feedback and share your experiences at www.silviva.ch podcast, where you can also find the show notes as well as more information about learning outdoors in and with nature. See you next time. Mm -hmm.